This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Join the only roundtable podcast in compliance with five of the top commentators in compliance. Check out the rants and shout out at the end of each episode. Hosted by Tom Fox, the voice of compliance. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Everything Compliance is now the award-winning Everything Compliance, having won the top talk show in podcasting award by W3. In this episode, we have the quartet of Jonathan Armstrong, Matt Kelly, Jonathan Marks, and Jay Rosen. Each will present their topic and then... We'll have fan favorites, shout-outs, and rants, which Tom Fox will join in with his first dual shout-out. I know you'll enjoy this episode of Everything Compliance. Before we get to today's episode, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another live edition of the award-winning Everything Compliance. Today, we have the quartet of Jonathan Armstrong, Jonathan Marks, Matt Kelly, Jay Rosen, and myself, Tom Fox, sitting in. So, gentlemen, we're going to go west, excuse me, east to west. We're going to start with our friend across the pond, Jonathan Armstrong. And what can you tell us about the compliance of wearing seatbelts while giving press conferences in the backseat of your limo? It's simply enough that I can tell you not to do that. Prime Minister Sunak, if you're listening another compliance failure but perhaps more relevantly to our audience today i want to talk a little bit about the nis 2 directive so what's the nis 2 directive you might ask in simple terms it's the second directive after nis 1 but you probably need to know a bit more than that the nis directives because we now have two deal with cybersecurity information security in the EU. NIS-1 was passed in 2016, and they're basically pieces of legislation that sort of sit alongside GDPR, but look at slightly different things. They're about the security of national infrastructure, which may or may not involve data breaches. So, for example, if the pumping station in your town gets knocked out by a cyber attack, then that's likely to be reportable under the NIS regime, but not necessarily under GDPR, because the pumping station might not have personal data there. So a lot of this is about looking at infrastructure. And in some respects, there are already plans to us, but part of the update to NIS is about a response to COVID and the many attacks that we saw on critical national infrastructure during COVID, particularly on pharmaceutical businesses, health businesses, where it was thought that they had the magic formula for vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. And I know that was huge. I know some people who work in this space that were working flat out at that time. NIS-1, as I say, has been around for a while. It's imposed additional reporting obligations in various sectors. 
And it, as I say, it's about the wider information security piece, not just data breaches. There are reporting obligations like under GDPR, but there's been a perceived lack of enforcement, a perceived lack of consistency across the EU. By the way, the UK still has a NIS regime. It won't do NIS 2 in the same form, but the UK will broadly follow these EU developments here. And the reporting obligations are many and varied. So if you're an airline, for example, then you have to report to your airline regulator, I guess the equivalent of the Federal Aviation Administration, under the NIS regime. As I say, you might also have to report to the data regulator under GDPR at the same time. And always a delicate balance to make because the NIS reporting deadline is tougher You've got to make your initial report in 24 hours, follow-up report in 72 hours, which obviously matches GDPR. So perhaps the main difference, NIS 2 versus NIS 1, is the extension of the number of sectors that are covered. And there's some exact details of this on the Cordry website. But basically, it's going to be things like healthcare, digital service providers, waste water providers, some type of product manufacturers, postal and courier services. That's in addition to the sectors that were in NIS 1. So that's things like energy, transport, air transportation, banking and financial services, pharma, clean water, wastewaters in NIS 2, clean water in, in NIS 1, other forms of digital infrastructure, some food provisions, vaccines, things like that. So a pretty comprehensive list. And we've obviously extended the definition of what national infrastructure is. And I think that's probably realistic, isn't it? Things that weren't super essential to us in 2016, so some forms of data distribution, are more critical to us in 2023 than they were in 2016. So in some respects, NIS 2 versus NIS 1 is a sign of how the world has become even more dependent on technology and how nation states and other attackers are determined to try and effectively resort to, to warfare by unfair means. And in response to Matt's question, the reporting obligation is generally to the regulator that regulates your industry. So if you're an airline, you're reporting to the airline regulator. If you're a regulated water provider, then you're regulating, reporting to the water regulator, et cetera, et cetera. And the exact reporting lines are left to each country within the EU. This isn't prescribed by Brussels at an EU level. Every country within the EU has to introduce its own scheme, its own reporting obligations and set up systems in those regulators to receive reports, but also in some cases to share them across the EU. The original plan for NIST, the original version, was to have a central reporting hub based in Greece, where all vulnerabilities would be reported to this one hub. I happen to be involved in the consultation exercise for NIST 1. One of the points that I and many others said is putting all of Europe's vulnerabilities into one box and trusting it to one underfunded organization in Greece is not a great idea 
Because if I'm a nation state actor, instead of having to compromise, for example, 400 different entities to find vulnerabilities, I only have to get one prize box. And thankfully, that those representations were listened to. So NIS is different. As I say, it does have these reporting requirements to different regulators in different places. Those regulators will assess how severe the incident is. And if it looks like an attack on Europe as a whole, then they'll share data with equivalent regulators in other countries as well. The obligations include on your supply chain. So if you're a food production business, for example, you're going to have to look at NIST reports throughout the supply chain. So again, a recognition that supply chain is critical to security and to oper safe operations for many businesses. It, as I say, includes reporting obligations within 24 hours. And there are fines which work a little bit like the GDPR fining regime. 2% of uh, global annual revenue is the fine. And obviously, you can be fined under the NIS regime and under the GDPR regime for the same breach. So the idea is that in some circumstances, two regulators in parallel will investigate and they'll fine for different things. Theoretically, you could be up to 6 7 8% of revenue by the time you've had different regimes in place like the EU regime versus the UK regime, etc., etc. So it's a directive, not a regulation. You, we could have a whole podcast on why that's a different thing. But it's not like GDPR, where it's a uniform law that is uh, theoretically enforced the same across the EU. It's a direction to national governments to make a law that looks like this. They can add stuff to it as well, and many countries will. So expect to see fairly granular obligations on things like minimum security standards, which corporations will have to comply. Countries have until 17th of October 2024 to produce their law, so to get it through their domestic parliaments, and the provisions must be in a month after that. So... The legislation itself, as I say, fall 2024, there's various obscure constitutional arguments on how some of the provisions could be regarded as in force now. Obviously, NIS 1 is already in law, and so some of these data breaches can be prosecuted under NIS 1, and we're likely to see more concentration on NIS 1 now that the uh, process of putting and this too has gone through. I suppose in some respects, nothing to do immediately for corporations except get ready and they'll need to prepare and they'll need to look at things like getting the right processes in place, rehearsing to make sure that they can do reports within 24 hours, making sure that their supply chain is connected and doing training both for their own operations and for the supply chain on the need to identify issues quickly and uh, and possibly report. That's it in a nutshell. Jonathan Marks, you have a question or, for Jonathan Armstrong? Yeah, Jonathan, I'm just wondering, the NIST framework is just that. It's a framework, correct? And then I guess part two of this is that if it's really a guide for, it doesn't 
can't really address controls. So what would you recommend for somebody out there that's trying to follow the NIST framework as its guide? And then what complements that? Yeah, good question, Jonathan. Maybe the first thing is to re revolve some confusion. We're talking here about NIST, N-I-S, which is similar, but not the same as NIST, N-I-S-T, i.e. the U.S. cybersecurity rules. It's unfortunate that they've both got similar names. And whereas NIST can, in some respects, be prescriptive, you're right that NIST tends not to be. So the EU NIST isn't as prescriptive as US NIST can be. And I suppose it's similar in some respects to GDPR. Businesses have to take appropriate technical and organizational measures. I'm simplifying. And they have to do what they can to prevent attacks. In many cases, they're going to rely on advice from their own sector regulators. For example, if I'm in aviation, there in the UK, the Civil Aviation Authority, for example, have done some great work with some really well-known, competent individuals to get out to the airline sector and say, this is what risk looks like, and this is what we expect you to do to prevent it. So it's left to industry regulators to do that. This is what we expect of you, peace. In addition, you can get, you'd be expected to follow guidance given by certs as part of the EU cybersecurity regime. Each country has an incident response team, which will give guidance and advice as well. And that might be, if you like, advice on current threats, or it might be more generic advice on security. As I said, the UK still has the NIS-1 regime. It will move to something that looks like NIS-2, but it'll be called differently. And in the UK, we have advice from NCSC, National Cybersecurity Centre, which is an adjunct of GCHQ, which will issue advice from time to time, either generic or sector-based. That might be public or it might be one-on-one. -on -one. You might literally get NCSC approach you and recommend that you improve your cybersecurity in a defined area. But again, that varies country by country. There is a European security body called INISA, which is setting some standards on an EU-wide basis. That's the outfit that's based in Greece. But there has been some concern in the past that they were somewhat under-resourced. Obviously, some of the funding from INISA comes from the Greek. The Greek government have had well-known, well-publicized other priorities. And then they're not, as I understand, even most of their resources aren't even on the Greek mainland. So they've had all sorts of resourcing implications. INISA hopefully will step up to the plate and take more of a lead role on, on some of these issues. But again, it relies on nation-state security services to contribute to the base of knowledge. So if you're a CISO of a global company, do you, you have to consider all yeah, if you're a CISO of a global company, you're going to have to consider NIS for sure. If you've got any sort of operations in Europe, then NIS will be really relevant to you. And it could be that the what NIS expects of you is very similar to what you're doing under NIS. US rules could be that there's a very close comparison. It's very likely that's the case. But even if the standards are the same, you should still rehearse reporting under NIS because the 24-hour timeline is more aggressive 
than you'd commonly see in other jurisdictions. Trust me, I've been in the room when you're trying to make those decisions. It's really hard. And if you haven't had a rehearsal first, you're fairly likely to fail. Yeah, no, I think those are great points. I mean, the only thing that I'm seeing here is that people have bolted themselves, whether in NIST in particular here in the U.S., and veering to the left are difficult for many. They just they can't see beyond that. They don't, they're not using eye to what they're doing. Yeah, and I think they, they will definitely have to. It, it's quite often the case, isn't it, that people are used to reporting to their home regulator and dealing with their own jurisdiction. But we've seen from GDPR fines that's false. I would guess, and it would be a guess, we're about 2.6 billion euros worth of fines. I think about 2.2-ish, I'd guess, will be US corporations. That forces the message that your home regulator is often not your greatest threat. And I think that's the same in the cybersecurity space as well. Yeah, great points. All right, we're going to swing across the pond our way to Matt Kelly. Matt, what's on your mind? Thank you, Tom. I have an interesting enforcement decision from the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission against McDonald's that came down not long ago. This case is interesting because it is about what companies are doing or they do not disclose when they are separating from senior executives who have been fired for misconduct. So here's what happened is that in the late 2010s, McDonald's had parted ways with its then CEO, Steve Easterbrook, fired Easterbrook in 2019 because he had an improper affair with a subordinate. And that was a violation of McDonald's code of conduct. And his contract said, if I violate the code, I am out. So they fired him and they decided to let him keep his severance package, including equity awards that were worth about $40 million. That was in 2019. And then in 2020, Word came out that actually Easterbrook did not have an affair with a subordinate. He had multiple affairs with numerous subordinates and lied about that during the first investigation back in 2019. McDonald's was very upset, took Easterbrook to court. And then finally, in 2021, they settled that clawback case where Easterbrook agreed to pay, I think it was about $105 million in back pay. That's all the backstory. What has happened lately is that just the other week, the Securities and Exchange Commission, first they fined Easterbrook $400,000 for his misconduct. He neither confirms nor denies the charges against him, but did agree just to pay the $400,000 to let it go. But what was really interesting was that the SEC also sanctioned McDonald's. Now, they did not actually fine McDonald's, but they gave McDonald's a cease and desist order that McDonald's had failed to disclose that it used discretion in giving Easterbrook that severance package back in 2019 for 40 million. This has caused some consternation in corporate governance circles because there are certainly people who think that idea, that sanction for not disclosing we used discretion, that violates or stretches securities law too far. It might open the door to what else are you supposed to disclose about executive separations? And it's just a very interesting issue because who has been talking a lot lately about executive clawbacks for misconduct? The Justice Department has talked about it. 
the FCC has a rule proposed forthcoming probably later this year that would make clawing back executive pay after misconduct, it would make it mandatory. And here now we have this enforcement case that says, you, McDonald's, you did not disclose enough to the investors and the shareholders about your thinking on why did you let Easterbrook keep his severance package? Why did you decide to terminate him without, when you clearly could have fired him for cause and kept that money? Republican commissioners were not happy about this. They did say that this goes too far with the rule. And if we want to make companies disclose that kind of stuff in an executive separation, then the SEC should adopt a rule and put it out for comment and let people go back and forth and debate it. Don't try and do this via enforcement action. On the other hand, the SEC enforcement division did point out that under current rules, you are supposed to disclose all factors that went into the board's thinking about a material change in the amount of compensation that fired executive would get. And certainly that's with or without cause. You could fire them without with cause, keep everything, and set his pay to zero. That is material change. I think this is interesting because really what we're getting at here is use of discretion. That's the phrase the SEC uses. It's really about exercising judgment. The board had the chance to fire Easterbrook the first time around for cause, keep the money. They decided we're not going to do that. We will fire him without cause. Your severance package is intact. And then they didn't actually pursue him until a year later when they found out he lied and he made them look foolish because they didn't figure it all out the first time around. But how the board exercises judgment is really a window into the board's ethical values and its priorities. We could risk some nasty litigation with this CEO we're firing, but we're going to keep all the money because he was bad. Could do that. Or we could just let him go, let him keep his money despite his misconduct just to avoid litigation. Those are very different sets of priorities. And would shareholders have a right to know how the board thinks about that and how the board is evaluating what it should or shouldn't do about keeping severance packages because of executive misconduct? It's a very interesting question. I think it does reflect some pushing the borders of what shareholders do or don't get to know. It has some relevance to corporate ethics and aren't investors allowed to see what the board's ethics are because the board is the representative of the shareholders. The shareholders are the boss of the board. But at the same time, we have the Justice Department and the SEC talking a lot about we expect you, company under investigation, to claw back executive pay when you can. And if you're not going to, then how does this work? Would you share your reasoning with the Justice Department, but not necessarily with investors in an SEC filing? It's a lot of questions about it. It's really a very interesting issue at, I suppose, at the borders or at the emerging growth areas of corporate securities law. And what, I don't know what the right answer is here, but I don't think this is the last time we're going to answer this question or be confronted with this issue. Matt, one of the questions, I'm going to pitch it over to Mr. Marks for sure. a comment or question. Yeah. So Jonathan Armstrong had one too, by the way. But Matt, I guess it's a long time understanding with regards to boards and the minutes and that they should keep records, notes, and, and these major decisions. There's also been a, a long time understanding secretaries that these types of decisions, some of them should not make its way into the board. 
And so I'm just wondering, to your point, your sensitive issues, they're big issues. They impact the organization. They could impact the organization from a reputation. But how much is actually aired and how much is not aired is probably going to change over the next 10 years. I just wonder, I just wonder if you have any thoughts. You're right from an overall ethics perspective and from an overall over this, but I'm just wondering how much they should actually keep and document or should everybody? There's different ways to answer that question. How much should you keep and document? A lot now because the Justice Department is talking about, we expect you to exercise clawbacks when you can. And if you're going to decide not to do that, you'd better have those records ready to show to the Justice Department about why you didn't. And I think you will need to document a lot of it because my what I hear from the Justice Department is that they're setting that bar pretty high. And the Securities and Exchange Commission's proposed rule is even higher. It specifically says the company must exercise clawback provisions if it gives incentive pay erroneously based on financial fraud. You don't have this choice. It says you must. Now, that rule has not yet come into effect, but I don't know what the final text is going to be. But there's less room for discretion there. On the other hand, I could easily see that there's a lot of sensitive thinking about that. What if this these decisions, what if this documentation comes out in a shareholder derivative lawsuit because they're not happy with how you treated the executive and they want to know why did you let them keep their equity awards when they were fired for misconduct. So I don't think that there's a good answer here. The rules around this disclosure are, I think, a little bit contradictory. Different sides could cite different specific parts of the rule to defend their positions. The enforcement division picked one part of the rules. I think it's rule 14A-3. The two Republican commissioners on the SEC who didn't like this, they picked a different item within rule 14A-3 to each of them proving their point. It goes to also what the Republican commissioner said is if we have this confusion right now, maybe we should clarify the rule, which means propose something, let people comment on it, let the SEC adopt it rather than try and shoehorn this in through an enforcement action to get everybody used. Because Jonathan Marks, what you had said, yeah, there is this set of practices and expectations we've all kind of followed since 2006, which was the last time the SEC adopted or looked at compensation discussion and analysis. But just because there's a body of common knowledge about it, that's not the same as what the actual rules are. And I don't necessarily know that it's all that stuff we've done is going to be in step with where investors are going to want to go in the next 10 years. You're right. I agree. The other Jonathan. Yeah, I've got a conundrum slash question slash comment, to which I don't know the answer. But obviously, Easterbrook was a UK national and I believe was originally employed under a UK contract. And I don't have any inside knowledge here. But I'm just wondering if that was part of the thinking at the board. A lot of US executives perceive that it is much harder to do an investigation for misconduct, particularly sexual misconduct, into somebody who has GDPR rights. And obviously, McDonald's had already had a warning from Kinnell maybe 10 years ago from the French data privacy regulator to not look at workplace affairs, et cetera, et cetera, when it was looking at whistleblowing investigations. And I'm just wondering if somebody was a little bit too 
risk averse in terms of the investigation and thought paying gets rid of a lot of pain, including the pain of getting to the bottom of what went on. And maybe this case is a warning sign that sometimes you've got to open up Pandora's box and look at what's inside rather than just think of how much money you can pay so that you don't have to turn the key. I think that's an excellent point. And it gets to one argument or one choice that the McDonald's board would have. You could get rid of Easterbrook, let him keep his equity pay, not pursue it, even though they could have kept all of that because you don't necessarily want to open this messy Pandora's box. But that is a reflection of the board's priorities and thinking. A very different one would have been, you had an affair, you violated the code of conduct, that's enough for us to dock your severance package. Full stop. Even before we get into all the other affairs he did have that he hadn't disclosed and he did lie to the board and all of that, even if you never get to that, they had the power to say, you violated the terms of the deal, we're going to keep your severance package. There's the door. Would he then have sued? Would that have created a big mess? It might have. It might also have been the case that Estabrook would say, whew, man, they didn't find out about everything else. I'm not going to sue them anyways, because that would be such a big mess. We have no idea how these other counterfactuals would play out in parallel universes. But it points to this awkward truth that use of discretion really is about exercising judgment and you exercise judgment based on what your priorities and your values are. Do invest, how much do investors have to know what those values and priorities really are in practice? That's the question. I just have one last comment. Hindsight is a one. That's all I'm going to say. True. With that, we're just going to move directly to you, Mr. Marks. And I'm going to introduce this a little bit by saying 10 to 15 years ago, you began to develop a new interpretation of the fraud triangle, which you call the fraud pentagon, and you added a couple of wings to it. I was wondering if you could tell us the insights you had, which led you to create the fraud pentagon and how you see that playing out with today's fraudsters all the way up to Elon Musk. Ooh, it's corporate culture, which often focuses on an individual status as demonstrated by wealth and fame, again, drives employees to seek larger payouts and more recognition. And that could be incentives, as we all know, can be one of the major enemies to a strong control environment. I think we've all, all talked about this, but they must be really, those things need to be digitally monitored, reducing the corresponding risk associated with them, which could be bad behavior. So these started, at least from my perspective, the need to expand this old theory from the fraud triangle, which considers an employee's competence or power to perform arrogance or lack of consciousness as factors in specific fraud situations. And what I mean by the reason that I came up with this was it felt like the human factor being ignored. And even till this day, I think the human factor and cult in, in our world and what we do from a fraud perspective is still something that is and ignored. And I just don't know why but i'll explain a little bit profile made off milken ski a bunch of fraudsters and i said can i go back to hindsight how did these frauds happen what was their mindset looking at us within the community i saw some really interesting things so i read everything about those individuals and came up with some factors which i whittled down arrogance arrogance expansion which are also human elements here so if you really look at this if you look at which again, I think still 
holds merit today and was developed in 1952 by Jesse. He didn't develop the fraud triangle, but he developed the three elements that should be present when opportunity and rationalization. The pressure part is certainly human element and the rationalization human element. The opportunity is really the control environment that controls within an organization. And so by adding competence, the competence piece to me relates to the fraud by expanding the element to account for an individual's ability. Again, the human element here, circumvent internal control. The competence element can apply to the social capital that an individual possesses and can deploy to sell to others. In other words, these folks are salespeople. And if you look at if you look at Elon Musk, look at Elizabeth Holmes, or pick any of your favorite fraudsters, I think the one thing that we can tell a story and they, they could basically sell, they could sell it to anyone they, or bully them into misbehaving or overlooking this improper con conduct. They have, I remember Richard Fold, his nickname was the gorilla. He's one of the other individuals that I look at people into doing things because he could. And that's where the competence, uh, but competence can also include perceived competence, which really applies when an individual, and again, from an overall fraud perspective you have to understand that the fraud we'll call the fraud triangle as originally laid out opportunity rationalization the which a lot of people don't understand one one is the one is the behavior one is the perpetrator and the other one is the actual behavior in concealment strategy and the conversion and so that concealment piece becomes big so an individual a situation to avoid being viewed as incompetent or that when something goes wrong is really a big deal. So competence, competence really goes around to that whole selling feature. Arrogance is really the person is really hubris or greed or just the internal controls just don't apply to me or policies and procedures just don't apply to me. If you look at these five elements, pressure, opportunity, rationalization, competence, and arrogance. If they are really understand them or that human element when you're dealing with individuals that are key within an organization it could really lead to disaster but those same elements that i talked about competence having competence being able to sell they're all elements of individuals and so i think there's a fine balance here and that's where i think the monitoring and that's why i say if they would really lead to, to issues with folks but i think the whole concept goes back to really looking at the human element behind this and that's really what got me charged up to to expand on all that you know, one of the one of the highlights in my professional career was to not know sent me a note one day and he says i actually think i get the fraud triangle now the fraud, i'm like that's great i'm glad somebody does jonathan i have a question or comment by adding this human element it occurs to me that this either gives you an opportunity as an organization to look into the background of the proposed executive, senior executive, or hire you're going to make, or looking at it another way, it mandates that a company do a really deep dive due diligence into such a person's background if they're a significant hire for a company. Do you see this ele element as giving companies uh, not so much ammunition to hire, not hire, fire, or not fire, but really to be able to protect themselves by looking into the background of a proposed executive. I think they should look into a background of a proposed executive regardless, but human. And you, t I think Matt talked about judgment before, uh, understanding 
how they come from, what the what their environment is. I think that's ultra critical because again, I think you have to monitor you have to monitor an individual's behavior. Again, if the if they're left on the show, what's going to happen? Let's just face the facts. Most of the time, things are okay, but you have times when these are not. We again, hindsight being twenty twenty, you go. There were signs. We basically ignored from the very beginning. To your point, Tom, and those are executives or people that came in from other places that have their own, maybe some cultural influence. Again, I'm not profiling, I'm not stereotyping anyone, but culture does play a huge. How business is done in certain parts of the world may not be acceptable in other parts. You may not be acceptable at all, to be quite candid with you. And so, you, I think it's really critical for those types of hires to not only understand, yes. Okay, someone has a clean background. It's fine. They don't have anything out there. But I think more importantly, it's really imperative for how this how this person thinks, how this per- person acts, or conditions in an environment. And sometimes you put walls up or gates up in order to protect. But you also do that to protect the organization as well. There may be a lot of good in this, and like I said, I think those people are generally good. But at, at the end of the day, it's the ones that aren't that we all say, "Hey, there were signs here, and we just ignored them." Oh, we're going to go all the way across the country now to Jay Rosen. Jay, there's been a lot of talk over the past few months about an effective compliance program. But I ask you to take a look at, can a compliance program be good enough? So with that intro, what did you find out? Tom, I think that's a great question for us to consider. And with it being January and the month of resolutions, what I'm going to talk about are some selections from an article written by Alex's partners, Rich Kando, Sean Dowd and Robert Coffey, and it recently appeared in the Harvard Law Forum on Corporate Governance. Business leaders of companies operating outside of the financial services industry are more frequently asking their legal and compliance department a variation of the following question. Is our company's compliance program good enough? It seems like a simple enough question, but unfortunately it has a very complicated answer, and there's no one-size-fits-all approach. However, there are certain attributes based on previous Department of Justice DOJ resolutions and historical compliance experience that are necessary for a compliance program to be, quote, good enough sets a floor that companies will want to meet or exceed as their company's programs mature. Last year in September, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco spoke out about, among other things, weaknesses in the compliance culture and companies with historical criminal enforcement actions. The DOJ also released a memorandum with the subject line of further revisions to corporate criminal enforcement policies following discussions with Corporate Crime Advisory Group. That's a mouthful. Let's just call it the Monaco memo. Certain items covered in this memo may be beyond the current control of your company and its compliance department, but other aspects in combination with DOJ compliance guidance issued in June 2020 provide a roadmap for a corporate compliance program to reach the good enough status. So how can you enhance your compliance program to be good enough? Before answering what is good enough, let's take a look at the difference between good enough and being simply great. At compliance, from past DOJ settlements, the difference between good enough and great is expensive and turns primarily on two measurable items. Number one, the depth and frequency of compliance processes, and two, the risk management culture of your company. Good enough as a goal may be better than great for many companies 
because the goal of achieving a great program can possibly stifle realistic progress due to the pursuit of perfection. Said another way, perfection should not be the enemy of the good enough. First, one point may be to the development of complex technology and deployment of digitalization initiatives as the hallmark of successful program. However, this approach shows a misunderstanding of the key components that need to be in place before the benefits of machine learning, predictive analytics, and increased digitization can be realized for a great compliance program. Secondly, an appropriate risk management culture can provide a safety net for a company that may have an evolving compliance program. Creating an effective risk management culture where employees are held to clear behavioral expectations and are encouraged to raise issues and concerns with the course of their work can help to bring to light compliance failures of misconduct before they become larger headaches. If issues are identified which require disclosure to the DOJ, it positions the company to potentially benefit as the Monaco memo specifically states that absent the presence of aggregating factors, the department will not seek a guilty plea where a corporation has voluntarily self-disclosed, fully cooperated, and timely appropriated remediated the criminal conduct. Let's try okay. using the DOJ compliance guidance from June 2020 as a framework to design a compliance program that would be rated as good enough. So how do we design a compliance program? The first question posed by the DOJ is, the corporation's compliance program, how well designed is it? Leaders must first focus on establishing basic key program components, and this requires the understanding of the risk posed to this organizations and associated with their employees, stakeholders, and activities. For a compliance program to be good enough, it must be risk-based. A risk assessment allows the company to provide evidence to support its risk-based decisions. Companies must also have documented policies and procedures. For companies with less mature programs that have not experienced a specific compliance-related event, we recommend that those policies and procedures be documented at a high level, including those related to third-party risk management and pre- and post-acquisition due diligence. Of course, there should be statements about what's required of employees and stakeholders, but the operational processes may evolve over time and the documentation should allow for flexibility until process becomes more mature. Companies of any significant size with good enough compliance programs have mechanisms in place that allow employees to report concerns, confidentiality, or anonymously. Companies with evolving compliance programs also usually conduct an annual compliance training for all employees. Many companies use this annual training to promote the ability of employees to use a confidential reporting mechanism to report concerns. As compliance programs mature, additional role-based training may be necessary. Okay, so now we'll look at compliance resourcing and culture. The second question posed by the DOJ is, is the program being earnestly being applied earnestly and in good faith. In other words, is the program adequately resourced and empowered to function? To address this question, leaders must focus on demonstrating a commitment to a culture of compliance, including aligning employee incentives such as compensation, bonuses, and other non-financial initiatives with good behavior. Additionally, this specifically ref is specifically referenced in the Monaco memo where it states, 
Corporations can help to deter criminal activity if they reward compliant behavior and penalize individuals who engage in misconduct. Certain systems that clearly and effectively impose financial penalties for misconduct can incentivize compliance conduct and deter risky behavior. Companies with a good enough culture of compliance will develop evidence that the culture, evidence of how the culture is promoted. This includes not only disseminating messaging about importance of compliance, but also demonstrating that appropriate behaviors ex are expected of all employees. Companies with evolving compliance programs should continue to evaluate the budgetary needs of the compliance function and consider if the compliance program has the adequate stature and authority within the organization. And number three, here's the final question posed by the DOJ. Does the corporation's compliance work in practice? To redress, address this question, companies with a good enough compliance program know that this program will have to continue to evolve with the business and mature over time. This generally occurs through risks analysis, testing of relevant controls, and investing and responding to investigative matters. An annual risk assessment is, key, is a key attribute of strong compliance. It serves as a reminder for the compliance and business teams to take stock of any changes in the business and conduct risk-based testing of controls to understand whether important controls are working effectively. Companies should continue to evaluate their program as their organization can learn from past events and enter new markets and expand their employee footprint. Leaders should also focus on a timely and thorough investigation of any allegations or suspicions of misconduct by the company of its employees. The company should conduct a root cause analysis of the incident and appropriately remediate the issues in a timely manner. So in conclusion, the DOJ compliance guidance from June of 2020 provides some flexibility for the enhancement of a compliance risk management program. But there are certain foundational elements that are required for a program to be good enough including a risk management assessment, documented policies and procedures, and focus on continuous improvement. Only after ensuring that these foundation elements are found firmly in place should a company even begin thinking about the next level of developing a great compliance program, which will, as we know, require longer-term sustained efforts and significant resources. Tom, back to you. All right, gents, we are now at our fan favorite shout outs and rants. We're going to keep the same order because Mr. Armstrong always comes well prepared. We've teased him with perhaps giving a press conference while motoring. So perhaps he has something else for us. Mr. Armstrong. I do have something else. I want to talk about the Bayer Tapestry which I guess you didn't expect me to be talking about. And the Bayer Tapestry is a, a fantastic work of embroidery. Some purists say it's not embroidery, but we're no room for the purists here. It's 230 feet long. It's 20 inches high. It was probably stitched in about 1070 in England by the Normans, who probably asked people in Kent to pictorially show their invasion, their trip from Norman France to the UK, and obviously the exploits of William the Conqueror in 1066. In 1792, the Bayer Tapestry was confiscated by revolutionary 
French forces who wanted to use it effectively as a tarpaulin sheet over wagons, sending stuff back to Paris. And it was rescued by a local lawyer who hid it. Napoleon decided that he wanted to exhibit the Bayeux tapestry in Paris to support his plans for the invasion of the UK. And when those plans fell apart, he mournfully returned it to Bayeux to try and follow the Ricky Gervais saying of, if at first you don't succeed, destroy the evidence that you ever tried. And we know that in the Second World War, in June 1944, Bletchley Park intercepted messages from Himmler promising that the Bayer Tapestry would go to Berlin to be exhibited by Hitler to show, to embody the fact that he had conquered Europe and he was effectively more than William the Conqueror in that he possessed the tapestry as well as the whole of Europe. So why randomly would I talk about the Bayer Tapestry? Because the UK government this week proposed legislation in its online harm bill, uh, online harms bill, that would prohibit any form of material on the internet which could be seen to promote the use of small boats to cross the channel. And some commentators say that it is likely that the legislation is so poorly drafted that it will prevent anybody ever talking about the Bayer tapestry online ever again. So the UK's version of government cancel culture might destroy any talk about those achievements of 1070 and the integral history of the Bayer tapestry that, like the tapestry itself, is interwoven in the history of Europe. Sunak, look at what you're doing and understand the consequences, the long-term consequences of denying people education rather than going for a quick sound bite, whether or not you're wearing your seatbelt in the back of the car. Wow, Matt Kelly, you have a high bar. <laughs> you're on mute, Matt. Matt, you're on mute. All right, sorry about that. So I, I've, I'm gonna keep it simple. I have a rant about the Justice Department. I am still ranting a bit about the idea, the policy from the Justice Department now that chief compliance and chief executive officers will need to certify the strength of the compliance program as part of corporate resolutions. I think this is an idea that is elegant in theory and difficult and impractical in practice. And now we actually have a first example of that from Donsk Bank. Donsk Bank settled a case, a money laundering case last month, and per de department policy now, it has a three-year plea agreement. And at the end of the three-year plea agreement, which is late 2025, the CCO and the CEO of Donsk Bank will need to certify that their program is designed appropriately and effective to prevent money laundering issues. The CEO of Donsk Bank today, a man named Satnam Lahal, he has announced that he's leaving at the end of 2024. 
Now, for the record, I don't know Mr. Lahal. I've never met him. I hear good things that he has been with the bank since 2019. He's been CCO since 2021, has played a strong role in building up Dance Bank's program to this date. However, if he leaves at the end of 2024, who certifies the strength of the program in 2025? And I asked the Justice Department this, and now finally they have gotten back to me this morning that they said that their expectation is that the current CEO at the time will be the person who signs that certification at the end of a three-year DPA or a plea agreement or probation period or whatnot. And this is my rant, is that I, yet again, I don't see how this really is a comfortable idea in practice. So the next CCO at Dance Bank is going to certify the strength of a program that he or she did not design. How do you get to review that program before you agree to take the job? What if the bank or any employer in this position tells a candidate, no, we're not going to let you do that. Our program's our program. Do What happens if you decide you want to revamp it all after you start the job? Do you get to do that? Do you go back to the Justice Department and say, the program we had originally signed when we settled this at the beginning of the agreement, we're changing all that up now. And we're going to certify to something else in the end of the DPA. There are plenty of questions here that remain unanswered, very practical. When I floated the department's answer about Dance Bank in particular to several CCOs, as one person said to me, oh, great. So I have to roll the dice if I want to take that job. I think that's a fair assessment of the department's position. What are we doing here? And I don't doubt that maybe we could answer that and figure out what we're doing here, but I would like us to know what we're doing before we start signing CCO settlement agreements like they're going out of style. But now we have at least three or four. We're going to have certainly more in 2023, I'm sure. But we need much more guidance about how this works in practice to get compliance officers into their comfort zone with this idea that, as I said, it's nice in the abstract. I still don't see how it works very nicely in practice. And my concerns remain. Mr. Barks. Wow, that's two tough ones to follow. Notice of, of error missions. How can the FA computer program that doesn't function or somebody unintentionally delete rounds almost every, every aircraft in the United States? And, and ironically, Canada not too long after ours. So I'm still waiting to really hear what happened here, that it wasn't because of unintentionally deleted files. So that's my... Very short, sweet, and concise. Jay Rosen, what do you have for us? It's decidedly weak sauce compared to my compatriots here, but after some tinkering with the number of playoff teams due to the pandemic over the past two years... Looks like the NFL finally got it right for the 2023 playoffs. Starting with seven teams in each of the two conferences, there are now eight retaining, remaining teams who will compete in four games that will be played over the weekend of January 21st. The games are all compelling, and I'm looking forward to a great weekend. So here's to the NFL for getting the playoffs right, at least right for 2023. Tom? I have my first dual shout-out. I'm going to begin with shouting out to Federal District Judge Middleton, who yesterday sanctioned Donald Trump, the Trump Organization, and his counsel for bringing a frivolous lawsuit against Hillary Clinton 
and 19 others. The sanction was for $938,000. And I'm going to read from the order. Quote, this case should never have been brought. Its inadequacy as a legal claim was evidence from the start. No reasonable lawyer would have filed it. Intended for a political purpose, none of the counts of the amended complaint stated a cognizable legal claim. 31 individuals and entities were needlessly harmed in order to dishonestly advance a political narrative. A continuing pattern of misuse by the, of the courts by Mr. Trump and his lawyers undermines the rule of law, portrays judges as partisans, and diverts resources from those who have suffered actual legal harm. I grant the defendant Dolan's motion for sanctions. Now before me is a motion, or previously granted, now before me is a motion for sanctions brought by 18 other defendants. The reasons also stated in my order, those sanctions are awarded. Now, as great as that order was, what takes it into the level of a true shout out is that the judge not only sanctioned Donald Trump, but he sanctioned Trump's lawyer jointly and severally. So guess who's going to pay this? Trump's lawyer, because Trump will never pay. He would have gone all the way into contempt without paying. And now the lawyer's in for it. So well done, Judge Middleton. But I have to give a second shout out to David Crosby, founding member of Crosby, Stills, Nash, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, member of the Birds, one of the great musicians from the 60s and 70s rock and roll era. And for his signature song, I almost cut my hair with the signature line, let your freak flag fly. Goodbye, David Crosby. Gents, that's it for me, and that's it for this episode of Everything Compliance. I can't wait to see what the next couple of weeks brings us. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Tom. Take care. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything Compliance. Have you ever thought about starting a podcast? Have you ever wondered if you could join the Compliance Podcast Network? We had some great new additions in 2022, and if you'd like to consider that or just talk to me about what it might take for you to start a podcast, I'd love to talk to you. We're always looking for new podcasts for the Compliance Podcast Network, the only network for podcasters in the compliance space. I hope you'll join us again in a couple of weeks when we have the full Everything Compliance gang back again. I'd also like to shout out to my colleague, Gwen Hassan. Gwen started the Hidden Traffic podcast about human trafficking, modern slavery, and issues surrounding those imbroglios that many companies find themselves in. Gwen not only won several awards in her first year as a podcaster, but she actually had the top two podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network for 2023. So congratulations, Gwen, and keep up the great work. Everything Compliance is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.